0: not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word for our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this privilege to study your word this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and as we look at how the Lord Jesus Christ interacted with those who opposed him in his ministry during the time of the Incarnation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things in this passage, the interchange, the dynamics of it, that it may encourage us and give us wisdom and skill as we deal with those in our own periphery who oppose the gospel and to those with whom we are trying to communicate the gospel. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Open your bibles with me to the 8th chapter of John. John chapter 8 verse 21. John 8:21. Now it has been a couple of weeks since we looked at John 8. I think it feels like even longer than that. Last week, we didn't have second hour because it was a little warm in here. I'll be glad when this heat wave breaks. It's nice to stand up here and not be sweating. And then the week before that, the air conditioner first went out, and everybody sat here stoically during that hour, and it was so hot, I thought I was going to melt. And I was trying to communicate some fairly intricate information that involved a lot of cognitive mobility. It's very hard to think and to be very flexible in your thinking when you are just trying to avoid passing out. So I don't know how much doctrine got understood, communicated, or metabolized during that particular lesson. I know that I was thinking, standing up here teaching, watching the glazed look on your eyes, and wondering if you were looking at a glazed look on my eyes. I had most of the information written out for me in my notes, and even then I'm not sure it made sense to me when I was communicating it, so I'm not sure it made sense to you. So we're going to take a little time to review uh, this morning. John chapter 8. This is, the more I study the section we're in and study this gospel, the more I'm impressed with the fact that when John wrote this, he has in mind a courtroom scenario. Remember, the purpose for this is that John says in John 20, 31, These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. When he says these are written, it refers to the previous verse where it talked about the fact that Jesus did many more signs. So when... John says that. He says these signs are written and there's basically eight signs in the Gospel of John around which much of the Gospel revolves. John is building a legal case that Jesus is the Messiah. This is evidenced in one way by the fact that he continuously uses courtroom terminology such as the word for witness martyreo which means to testify to give witness in a courtroom situation and there are seven different witnesses that are brought forth in the Gospel to give testimony to the uh, person and work of Jesus Christ. And so there's this this mood of a, uh, of a courtroom proceeding that hangs over this whole Gospel. And as we got towards the end of chapter 4, made our shift into chapter 5, there is a, a sense in which the the, the movement in the epistle changed. I don't know if you've caught that. But starting in chapter 5 through the end of chapter 12, and we're right in the middle of that now, in the middle of chapter 8, we have a series of head-on confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And there's one confrontation after another. And what we're seeing is a courtroom scenario. On one hand, there is the prosecutor. On the other hand, there is the defense. The prosecutor is the Lord Jesus Christ representing the kingdom of God and he is bringing a charge against the human race represented by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the defense attorney in a sense. And so there is this clash as the prosecutor is laying out his evidence for who he is and what God is doing in human history. And in opposition, we have the Pharisees. So think about it in that sense. It's a very antagonistic situation, a very controversial situation, just like you have in a courtroom setting. Now, when we came to the end of chapter 7, all the events in chapter 7 took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. And then there was the interlude after the end of the feast. There is the interlude where we saw that this episode with the woman taken in adultery. And I said when we studied that, that even though there's some textual debate over whether or not this is included in the, uh, in the original gospel, that it fits dynamically within the thematic development because it also uses various terms that are related to the courtroom scenario. And it brings to focus the fact that the Pharisees don't care anything about the law, which is what Jesus had just accused them of back at the end of chapter 7 that they're not interested in the law. And even Nicodemus pointed that out, that that, uh, as they were arguing for the law that Jesus was a lawbreaker, Nicodemus said, well, even according to the law, we give people who are the accused an opportunity to state their own case. And that, of course, gives evidence of the fact that they're concerned with their own agenda. That they are hostile to God. They, ha- they don't know God. They don't know the claims of God. They don't understand the Scriptures. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. is Even though you Pharisees are religious, you've memorized the Old Testament, you know it backwards and forwards, you're involved in all sorts of ritual day in and day out. You go to the temple uh, three times a day. You pray seven times a day. You make sure everybody sees all of these overt religious activities But you don't know God at all. See, that's hard for us to understand because we think somebody who uses a lot of God talk and is involved in religious activity somehow wants to know God. But what Jesus is saying is you people are negative to God, period. Just because somebody is involved in religious activity does not mean they have positive volition toward God. In fact, one of the clear evidences of negative volition to God is is positive volition toward religiosity and religious activity and all that goes with it, the ritual and everything else, because that's where the emphasis is. And what's amazing to me, watching the overall Christian scene over the last 20 years or 25 years, is that there have been two or three uh, prominent evangelical leaders that have gone into ritual denominations because of one reason or another. And the question is often asked, well, why did they do that? And the answer is, the ritual makes them feel good. See, it's the other extreme from getting involved in the holiness Pentecostal thing. See, that too is emotion and experience that lifts people up and gets them jazzed and makes them feel good and they go home and they talk about how wonderful God was. But you can get that same kind of emotional uplift through the participation in certain ritual. It makes them feel good. It's just you know different strokes for different folks. But it's the same thing. It's a rejection of truth and teaching in favor of ritual and experience. And Jesus is confronting the Pharisees as the leaders of the nation Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin makes up the governing body of Israel. And it's composed of members of both the Sanhedrin Party and the Pharisaical Party. And these are used as representative of the leaders of the nation. Now some people have said that perhaps as many as 30 or 40 percent of Jews at the time of the incarnation accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. I don't know how they make that claim. I know that there are many passages and we're going to see a reference to it in this passage. We saw a reference to it in the... Uh, piece of the tabernacles in the last chapter, that as people heard Jesus make this claim, the Scripture says, many believed on His name. So we know that many are truly saved. Many are responding positively to Him, but the majority do not, and the leadership does not. And because the majority reject Christ, and because the leadership rejects Christ, this Gospel also stands as an indictment against the nation Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. And John is marshalling all this evidence, sort of a sub-point to everything, is to show that there was more than enough evidence to demonstrate that Jesus was who He claimed to be. That He was the Messiah, He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, and He was qualified to go to the cross to die as our substitute. There's more than enough evidence, but in spite of all the evidence... He is rejected. Now, we came last time to the section from verse 20, or verse 12 down through verse 20. And we see this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it begins with this pronouncement. Now, remember the context. They've just had the confrontation with the woman brought in adultery. It happened very early in the morning. The sun has just come up. We're told that Jesus went out at the break of day. to go to the temple that morning and he began to teach. So people were up very early. It may be hard for some of you people who are night people to understand, but there are those of us who do think that true spiritual life takes place before 6 a.m. in the morning. I know that's hard to understand. When it gets to be about 9 o'clock at night, the lights are off and nobody's home as far as I'm concerned. It's just... I've noticed that for years. One time when I was in seminary, I was trying to earn a living in sales. And I was selling insurance. And one of the things that we had to do was make calls. People weren't at home during the day, so we'd have to make calls at night. By 7 o'clock at night, I'm gone. I do not have the energy or the motivation to do anything. And I just had to go find another job. Because the last thing I want to do in the evening is really get involved in a whole lot of cognitive... Activity. I would rather just kick back. Of course, I could try to get up around 5 or 5.30 in the morning and I try to do most of my studying because I'm the most productive in terms of my studying by 11 o'clock in the morning or noon. So that's when I try to get most of my work done. And apparently Jesus was a morning person as well. <laughs> so that must be the path to higher spirituality. <laughs> We're supposed to be Christ-like, aren't we? Well, maybe that's pushing it too far. So it's very early in the morning, and they've just had this confrontation with a woman taken in adultery, and that probably took no more than 20 or 30 minutes. And as she is departing from the court of the Gentiles, she's going to exit the entrance, which is on the east side of the temple. So she's departing into the sun. And as the sun is coming up, and everybody turns to watch her leave, Jesus makes the profound announcement I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, if you were here two weeks ago when we went through this, I made the point of saying that this is not a salvation verse. This is a verse that has to do with the spiritual life. The terminology in Scripture related to light Should always make us think, first of all, in terms of illumination of darkness, and that is related to the whole subject of revelation. Back at the beginning of John 1, Jesus is the life, and in him, he is the light, and in him is the life of the world. So this is fundamental to his character. He is revealing God to mankind. So he says, I am the light of the world. So this has to do with illumination. So let's do this we'll have revelation here under it we'll write lagos and then we'll draw these two lines here going down like a pyramid and draw a circle and this is the area of illumination and we'll mark it off as light and everything outside of this circle is darkness and man is born in darkness and he operates in darkness And he loves the darkness according to John 3.20 and following. He rejects the light. This is man's natural inclination because he is a fallen creature. He wants to make life work on his own. And he's out here in spiritual darkness and revelatory darkness. So he's trying to figure out everything there is to know about life just on the basis of his own mental ability. That means that he is relying upon limited human systems of knowledge. Empiricism, rationalism, and mysticism. Trying to figure out how do I know what truth is and how can I make life work. And Jesus comes along and says, He is the light of the world. Now this picks up all kinds of imagery all the way back into the Psalms where we're told that in Thy light, O Lord, we see light. In other words, the only way that we can really see truth, that we can understand reality, is when it is preceded by illumination from God. It is not to say that reason or experience don't have their place. They have their place... But the starting point is always divine revelation. He tells us what the issues are, and then there is development from that point on. This is analogous to what took place in the uh, initial week of creation. When God created the heavens and the earth, there was light, and God separated the light from the darkness. And He called the light day, and and the darkness He called night. God began to develop vocabulary. And He began to identify certain things. And all the way through those six days of restoration, you see how God creates certain things and He names certain things. But He doesn't name everything. And then He comes down to the animals and He says, He creates Adam and He says, it's your job to name the animals. God provides the starting point and then man operates within the framework of that starting point. Man doesn't start autonomously out here somewhere and decide, okay, the starting point is going to be human experience. Or up here, the starting point is going to be human reason. Or down here, the starting point is going to be my intuitive impressions. The starting point is revelation. And then, on the basis of empiricism, on the basis of reason, on the basis of of logic, we develop within those parameters that God sets forth. And so, light is then going to be the source of truth with a capital T. Now, all of this is important because everything that's going to happen, in the rest of this chapter, in this whole confrontation with the Pharisees, flows out of Jesus' statement here that He is the light of the world. He is the source of truth. He is the source of illumination. And those who follow Me shall not walk in darkness. And we said that that word follow, which is the Greek word akalutheo, a k o. L O U T H E O is the word to follow someone else's leadership, and Jesus uses this. He said, "Not this is not." We'll put this sign up here. This is not equivalent to faith, to saving faith, salvation faith. This has to do with living the spiritual life. This is not entering into salvation. Jesus said. If you are going to be my disciples, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Well, that involves human works and human effort. And that's antithetical to the Gospel. The Gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. So there is a distinction between trusting Christ as your Savior, which has to do with justification, salvation, phase one, and following Jesus, which has to do with the spiritual life, which is the concept of Sanctification. So Jesus is talking here. He's beginning to address Himself to the issue of spiritual life, which He'll come back to in verse 31 briefly. He keeps getting interrupted by the unbelievers. See, unbelievers can't understand spiritual truth. So Jesus starts trying to teach some things about spiritual truth, and He's immediately confronted by this antagonistic, pharisaical, legalistic crowd who want Jesus to dance to their tune. And Jesus is not going to dance to their tune. This is, always happens to us as believers whenever you're talking to an unbeliever. Here you are, an unbeliever, and you're operating on divine viewpoint. This divine viewpoint is informed by divine revelation. You are in the light, and you realize what the real issues in life are and what the real starting point in life is. And then you're trying to communicate the issue to some unbeliever and he's over here standing on human viewpoint concepts of knowledge and so this unbeliever is going to turn to you as a believer and say prove jesus died on the cross for my sins or that that you're right or that god exists or something like that and as soon as he says this he is his very question his very question assumes a certain view of reality Now, that view of reality is this human viewpoint concept of reality and truth and proof, which is antithetical to a divine viewpoint concept of reality and truth. Now, if you answer his question, what you're doing is basically validating his assumptions about reality. Now, this is where it gets tough. Now, not everybody you witness to is going to be this way. You don't have to. Do, we've seen this with Jesus when he when he handled Nicodemus one way, he handled the Samaritan woman another way. You know, different people have different issues and come from different backgrounds. But when when you have a, a a more intellectually challenging situation, you have to think a little bit, sort of like a chess player. You have to know why they move the way they move. And Jesus knows what's going on here because the Pharisees do the same thing, and they say. You're bearing witness of yourself, therefore your witness is not true. What they're saying is, okay, we have a law. That law says that you can't bear witness. There has to be two witnesses. Now, the law applies to a man. So their underlying assumption is, Jesus, you're just a man, and therefore you're, you have to come under the Mosaic law just like everybody else. Well, Jesus is not going to validate that assumption. So Jesus is going to clarify things, and then He will say, on the basis of your assumption, assuming what you're saying is true, I've got two witnesses. But he never validates their assumption. And that's the move that's going on here. In verse 13, and what this shows, let's go back to our idea, what this continually shows, what John wants you to understand, is the Pharisees continue to be in darkness because they have rejected truth. And we see the conflict between Jesus as the light who is proclaiming truth and the Pharisees who are over here in darkness and don't have a clue. The Pharisees challenge him in verse 13, and he says, even if, and this is a concessive clause, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. He says, if I am the only one bearing witness, even under those conditions, my witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. Now, some of you who might be thinking a little bit this morning, It's not too early for you. Well, remember that we had a similar scenario back in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, is this a contradiction? In John 5, He says, If I bear witness alone, my testimony is not true. And here He says, Even if I bear witness to myself, my witness is true. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Oh, we went through that in detail back in John 31, and there we saw that the issue that Jesus was, was focusing on there was His, that He was not operating independent of the Father, but He was dependent completely on the Father. And what He is saying in John 5.31, if I bear witness independent of the Father, then my witness is false. And what He is saying in John 8 is even if I bear witness of Myself, not in isolation from the Father, the issue is not dependence or independence here. He's saying even if I bear witness of Myself, My witness is true. Why? Because I am true. I am the way, He will say later on, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because He is fully God, He participates in all of the attributes of deity, including veracity, which means that He is... Absolute truth. He, he doesn't conform to truth, folks. He is truth. What Jesus Christ thinks, because what He thinks and what the Father thinks and what the Holy Spirit thinks are identical, because what they think is reality, what they think is truth. It's not some standard that they're conforming to outside the Godhead that is some autonomous principle called truth that God go, God subscribes to and therefore the unbeliever can go to this autonomous principle of truth and he can subscribe to it so truth is a position of common ground truth is not a position of common ground because the unbeliever is in darkness they're operating on human viewpoint their starting assumptions are either pure rationalism pure empiricism mysticism or a combination of the three and so they don't know what truth is truth is defined as what goes on in the mind of God. And when you're oblivious to spiritual things because you're a natural man and the natural or soulish man, the Sukikas man, cannot understand the things of God, you can't understand what truth is. You may understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but in terms of how that fits into the big picture as part of the mind of God, you're, you're blank. So you can only understand it, its truth in a limited sense, but not in an absolute sense. So Jesus is saying that because I am who I am, my witness is true. I don't need confirmatory evidence because I am God, and this has been my claim all along that I am God. I don't need to come under the Mosaic Law. I don't need somebody else to validate me. Because if I am God, there is no other reference point. If you're God... To whom are you going to refer that's greater than you to validate your position? No one, nothing exists in the entire universe greater than God. So the very fact that Jesus is making this is a very subtle claim to full absolute deity. He says, I do not need to refer to anything else to validate my claim. My claim is self-authenticating, but because you are in darkness, you're rejecting it. That's the thought here. So you don't know. He says, for I know where I came from. He has complete self-knowledge. And I know where I am going. I know God's plan. I know God's plan for my life. I know why the incarnation took place. And I know what I'm going to accomplish on the cross. In contrast, you don't know where I come from You or where I'm going. Why? They're in darkness, He's the light. And then He goes on in verse 15 and 16 to talk about His role in relationship to judgment. And then He comes back in verse 17. He says, even in your law... It's been written that the testimony of two men is true. And then he said, that's his move now. The first move was, I'm not going to grant your assumptions. I am God. I don't have to have another witness. But, granting your assumption, the law does say two witnesses. I've got two witnesses. Myself and God the Father. I am He who bears witness of Myself. The Father who sent Me bears witness of Me. Now, look at their reaction in verse 19. And so, they were saying to Him, where is your Father? They don't have a clue what He's talking about. They are in darkness. Notice this shift. We've got the prosecution for God's case saying, I am He. I am carrying out the Father's will. The Father is the best witness. He is my witness. And they're saying, who's the witness? Who's the Father? We We don't even know who you're talking about. They're in complete darkness. So, John is making us understand that, look folks, there's only two realms of activity here. Light and darkness. There's no middle ground. Then we're told in verse 20, these things he said in the treasury. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. What John isn't saying, what you need to read between the text here, is the fact that there's an incredible amount of antagonism and hostility to him. They want to seize him but they don't because His hour hasn't come. Now we come to verse 21. That much has been reviewed. Jesus then responds to their reaction and He says, I go away and you shall seek Me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot go. So the subject here now is going to be the second death. Jesus Christ is going to explain to them the issues related to eternal condemnation and related to his own plan and purpose. So verse 21 takes us back to verse 14. I want you to see this. This is very intricate. I've had three weeks now to think about this chapter, so there's a lot here. He keeps going back and unpacking what he's already said and giving us a little more information. A lot of repetition here to make sure that his hearers understand the point. Back in verse 14, Jesus said, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you don't. Now he says, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now what's going on here? When Jesus says you die in your sin... We have to understand this whole context. Here's the unbeliever. The unbeliever has a sin nature. Now, on the cross, Jesus is going to pay the price for every single sin so that sin is no longer the issue. But, because the unbeliever does not accept the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross... The problem of the sin nature, and that's the thrust of sin in the singular here. He's going to change it to sins in about three verses. But sin emphasizes the sin nature. Because they possess a sin nature, they cannot go to heaven. And what Jesus is saying is if you don't accept the penalty, then you're going to die in your sin. He's not saying you're going to be judged eternally for your sin. See, at the cross, He paid the penalty for sin so that the only issue that's left over is human good. But the unbeliever, because of the sin nature, is in bondage to that sin nature. They are a slave to sin. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6. We're born in this slavery in bondage to the sin nature. Now, that's exactly where Jesus is going. When we get down to verse 31... Jesus is going to start teaching the disciples a few basic principles here, those who have believed. And he makes the statement, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that phrase is plastered all over every liberal arts building in this country just about, and it's a false application. And when we read it, we have to ask the question, what kind of freedom is... Uh, Jesus talking about here. Is He talking about economic freedom? Is He talking about social freedom? Is He talking about political freedom? No, He's not. He's talking about spiritual freedom. Why? Look at the context. Verse 34, Jesus explains Himself. He says, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin." And that is a present active participle of poieo, which means to continually practice sin... And that represents the person who has a sin nature and is not a believer and is in complete bondage to that sin nature. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you still have a sin nature, but you are going to be set free from the power of the sin nature. Remember, there are three phases or stages to salvation. Phase one, you are saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Phase two, we are saved from the power of the sin nature, and that's the process of the spiritual life, where we learn to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and to follow and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, so we don't carry out the lust of the flesh. And then phase three, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We leave the sin nature behind. We're minus the sin nature. We're glorified, so we are freed from the presence. We're saved from the presence of sin. So what's happening here is Jesus is saying that those who practice sin are slaves to sin. You're not freed from the sin nature until the point of salvation. When you are freed from the power of the sin nature and you don't experience that, that's not real in our experience until we learn doctrine and start to apply it. But we are positionally free at the moment of salvation and experientially free as we abide in the Word. And that is fellowship with two connotations there, fellowship with with the Lord and persistent learning and application. And we'll see that when we get there. But what I'm trying to do is give give you an overview as we go through this discourse to understand what Jesus is really talking about. So when He says, I go away and you shall seek Me, He is talking about two things. I go away, number one, I'm going to go to the cross. And number two, I'm going to ascend to heaven. And you shall seek me. They're going to look for him. They're not going to know where to find him. They're in in, in their antagonism to him. And Jesus says, And you shall die in your sin. You're going to die in bondage here because you never trust Christ as my Savior. Your whole life you're going to be in bondage to the sin nature. You're never going to be free from the sin nature. You're never going to have salvation. So you're going to die in the sin nature and in personal sins that's what he says in two more verses so we'll just cover it now you'll die in your sin nature you will die in your sins but at the second in terms of the second death at the great white throne judgment which takes place at the end of the millennium at the end of the 1000 year year reign there's the Gog and Magog revolution and then you have the great white throne judgment and at the great white throne judgment All unbelievers are brought before God. No believers, just unbelievers. This is in Revelation chapter 20. All unbelievers are brought before God, and the books are taken out, the books of life and the book of works. So this is not the book of sins, so that God's not going to read out all your sins. Why? They were paid for at the cross. God's going to read out all your good deeds, all the works of the unbeliever. They're not penalized in eternity because of their sin. They're penalized because when you add up all their works, they still equal minus R. And so because they do not have plus R, which is required to have eternal fellowship with God, they are sent to the lake of fire. Now that's what Jesus means when he says you will die in your sin. Because you were never freed from the sin nature, you will die in your sin, and that death he's talking about is the second death. There are seven different kinds of death in the Scriptures, and the last is eternal condemnation. It's called the second death, and it is eternity in the lake of fire. I go away, you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin. Where I'm going you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, Notice this turn back a page, and Jesus says almost the same thing in John seven thirty four. For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And look at how they responded then. What does he do? Does he intend to go to the dispersion, the diaspora? Does he mean to, go to leave the country and go among the Greeks? Very sarcastic. And here they say, what's he talking about? Maybe, maybe he's going to kill himself. It says uh, verse twenty two, surely he will not kill himself. And this is a very interesting way they put this in the Greek. They ask it in terms of a negative question. He will not kill himself, will he? And the negative there is in the Greek is a may. Now this is one of the interesting things. In Greek you have two negatives. You have may and ooh. Now if you use ooh in a rhetorical question, then you expect a positive answer. If you expect If you use may, you expect a negative answer. So they expect a negative answer. They say, he won't kill himself, will he? No. But they're hinting. They want him out of the picture. Why don't you go kill yourself? There's a real subtle innuendo here that we're going to make a little suggestion here. Why don't you... If you're going to go somewhere, why don't you just take yourself out of the picture? So they are really in heresy. They're in absolute darkness. They're very sarcastic in this whole interchange. And then Jesus is going to illustrate the point of light versus darkness even more. He says, you are from below. That is, earthbound. I am from above. Earthbound equals human viewpoint knowledge. They are in darkness. You are of this world. I am not of this world. He is explaining that there is a vast difference. They are darkness. They are from below. They are from this world. All of that speaks to the limitations of human knowledge. Jesus is light. He is from above, and He is not from this world. He is from heaven. So Jesus has come to declare truth, and they're rejecting it. And now, verse 25, they say, well, they say, uh, verse 25, uh, uh, or verse 23, excuse me, verse 25. So they were saying to Him, Who are You? And Jesus said, What have I been saying to you from the beginning. Haven't you gotten the point yet? Now, let's stop a minute and recognize that Jesus has been continuously making a claim to be God. But they don't hear it. This is the blindness of spiritual death. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And you're always going to run across somebody who's going to say, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a religious innovator. Jesus was a good teacher, a moral teacher, an ethical teacher. And yet, if you're honest at all with what the Scripture says, that's the only basis we have for what Jesus taught, you have to realize that He claimed to be much more than that. And if He claimed to be God, then he—and and He wasn't, then he wasn't a good man, he wasn't a religious innovator, and he wasn't a good teacher. But if he claimed to be God, and he was, then that changes everything. And listen to how Christ has claimed to be deity so far. Jesus Christ claimed to be de- deity. First of all, his use of the phrase, ego, and me. The first person singular pronoun, I, plus the present active indicative, of the to be verb in its first person singular form, meaning I am. See, the thing is, in Greek, if you want to say I am, some of you have seen this in other foreign languages, if you want to say I am, if you use the first person singular of the verb, you don't have to use the pronoun. The verb alone means I am. But when Jesus adds to it the first person pronoun ego, and says, ego and me, he's making a very emphatic statement, and this is related to the Old Testament personal name for God, which we pronounce Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. And it's the personal name for God and it means comes from the Hebrew verb Hayah, meaning to be, and it's translated usually I am who I am, or I am that I am, implying continuous existence present tense. So Jesus has used this term, ego and me, to apply to himself many times so far. In John four twenty six, he used it to refer to the woman at the well. Now the interesting thing about this, and we're going to see it in this passage as well, that in the New American Standard, sometimes they, it's not clear that he's saying I am. They add a prep, pronoun to it, I am who, and they add a are that, I am that, and they add something that's not there. And it's real clear Jesus says to the woman, I am the one who is speaking to you. It's very emphatic in the Greek that he is making a claim to deity. In John four twenty six and John six twenty he says, I am it to the disciples. John six thirty five he says I am the bread of life. John six forty eight he says I am the bread of life. John six forty one the Jews complained because he said, I am the bread of life. John 6.51, He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And in John 8.12, He says, I am the light of the world. This is just the beginning. So He claims to be deity by His use of the phrase, I am. Second, Jesus claimed to do the identical functions of God the Father. In John 5.18, He said, The Father is working and I am working. And he used the same verb both times, in ghetto, which was to emphasize the fact that he is carrying out and performing the identically same work as God the Father, which means that he is claiming full deity. Point three. In John 5.19 and John 5.25, Jesus claimed full deity by calling himself the Son of God. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, remember in an Aramaic idiom, when you claimed that you were the son of something, whatever you were the son of, that was the character quality that you were claiming. For example, uh, we saw that Barnabas was a son of encouragement. That meant that he was an encourager. If someone was a um, uh, difficult person to get along with, then they were called as SOB, a son of Belial. I saw some of you thinking something different there. Just wanted to see if you were awake. So that indicated that they were of an antagonistic disposition. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, He is claiming to be God. He is claiming full deity. Point number four. In John 5.21 and in John 5.28, Jesus claimed to be the source of life and to give life like God the Father. He claimed to be the source of life and to give life like God the Father. Point number five: In John 5:22, Jesus claimed to have the same right to judgment as God the Father, that he could judge just as God the Father judged. So he has the same right of judgment as God the Father. Point number six. He can be given the same honor as God the Father in John 5.23. So he is to be worshipped in the same way that God the Father is worshipped. Point number seven. He claimed to give life to the dead just as God the Father could give life to the dead. John 5.21. Point eight, he claims to be sent directly from heaven. This is found in John six twenty nine, John six thirty eight, John six fifty one, John six fifty seven, and in seven twenty eight to twenty nine. He claims to come directly from God the Father. And then finally, point number nine, in John six forty six. He claims to be the only one who has seen God and therefore the only one who can reveal God. Now, when you look at this, you realize it is absurd for anyone to say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's only a good man. So the next time you witness to somebody, now you have a little ammunition. And as we go through the rest of John, we're going to see a whole lot more of this. Jesus clearly, again and again, Full deity. So he says, who are you? Jesus said, they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what I have been saying to you from the beginning. Notice their blindness, their darkness. This, this is a, he's further developing what he said back in verse 19, where, where Jesus answered and said, you know neither me nor my Father. It's making clear they don't know Him. And they don't know who the Father is. Then in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the the world. Notice he goes back to that theme of truth. He is the light of the world. He is revealing truth. The Father sent me in order to communicate truth to mankind, and I am speaking what he told me to speak. I'm communicating what he told me to communicate And that is revelation. That's the light. That's His function as the light of the world. And look at the reaction, verse 27. They did not realize that He had been speaking to them about the Father. They're in darkness. See, back in verse 19, He says, You know neither Me nor My Father. And here, after this interchange goes on, they have no idea that He's talking to them about the Father. They're in spiritual darkness. Why? Because they are negative to God. If they were positive, then the Holy Spirit would be working to illuminate them, and the Holy Spirit is working on some of them, because there are some in this crowd who are positive. Verse 28, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who has sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And look at the result of what He's just said. Verse 30, As He spoke these things, what? Many came to believe in Him. Now that's the statement that we have in the Greek again and again in the Gospel. The verb is pisteuo. P-I-S-T-E-U-O which means to believe Accept something as true and to rely upon it. Pistuo, and then the object is expressed by the preposition ACE, E I S, which expresses the object of faith, which is Christ. They believed in Him, and so they are saved at this point in time. So the Pharisees, for the most part, are dark, but there are some in the crowd who are responding to the illumination of the light of the world, and they are putting their faith alone in Christ alone. Now this, verse 30, forms an interesting transition, because at this point, after making these claims and explaining who He is, that He's fulfilling the plan of the Father, and just as the Father communicated these things to Him, He's communicating those to the human race, There is the response of many in the crowd to salvation. Now, he changes his focus. There's there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that have surrounded him. But he changes his focus now. He's been in this confrontation with the religious leaders, and now he's going to turn and address the believers. This is a mini-sermon. It lasts two verses. Because then the hostile Jews who are still there are going to interrupt him because they do not understand spiritual truth or what He is saying. And in verse 31 we read, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him. Now the other Jews are still there. So now He's turning the focus to those who had believed in Him and He makes this profound statement about abiding in His Word and knowing the truth. Now this is a vital concept so we don't have time to finish it This Sunday, but we will start with that next week and you will find out what it means to abide in my word and to be true disciples of Jesus with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at your word that it is indeed a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It is your revelation of yourself to us just as Jesus is the ultimate revelation of you that no man has seen You at any time, but the only begotten of the Father, He is the one who has revealed Him. Now, Father, we pray that we can understand these things under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and as You illuminate us through Your Word, You will help us to see how these things apply to our lives. And, Father, we too pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, who is unsure of their salvation, that You will make the Gospel clear to them, and that they would realize that all they have to do has put their faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of church attendance, church membership. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of what what sins they've committed or haven't committed. It's It's not an issue of how bad they are, how good they are. The issue is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you saved us. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here uncertain of their salvation, that they would take the time right now by forming the words, the prayer, and thought alone that they would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that you would help us remember these things to apply them to our thinking and to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.